We now continue with part two, section C of Justice Alito's dissent in Fisher v. University of Texas at Austin. Enjoy. Section C. Although UT's primary argument is that it need not point to any interest more specific than the educational benefits of diversity. It has, at various points in this litigation, identified four more specific goals. Demographic parity, classroom diversity, intraracial diversity, and avoiding racial isolation. Neither UT nor the majority has demonstrated that any of these four goals provides a sufficient basis for satisfying strict scrutiny and UT's arguments to the contrary depend on a series of invidious assumptions. 1. First, both UT and the majority cite demographic data as evidence that African American and Hispanic students are underrepresented at UT, and that racial preferences are necessary to compensate for this underrepresentation. But neither UT nor the majority is clear about the relationship between Texas demographics and UT's interest in obtaining a critical mass. Does critical mass depend on the relative size of a particular group in the population of a state? For example, is the critical mass of African Americans and Hispanics in Texas, where African Americans are about 11.8% of the population, and Hispanics are about 37.6%, different from the critical mass in neighboring New Mexico, where African-American population is much smaller, about 2.1%, and the Hispanic population constitutes a higher percentage of the state's total, about 46.3%. UT's answer to this question has veered back and forth. At oral argument in Fisher 1, UT's lawyer indicated that critical mass could vary from group to group and from state to state. And UT initially justified its race-conscious plan, at least in part, on the ground that significant differences between the racial and ethnic makeup of the university's undergraduate population and the state's population prevent the university from fully achieving its mission. UT's extensive reliance on state demographics is also revealed by its substantial focus on increasing the representation of Hispanics, but not Asian Americans. Because Hispanics, but not Asian Americans, are underrepresented at UT when compared to the demographics of the state. On the other hand, UT's council asserted that the critical mass for the university is not at all dependent on the demographics of Texas, and that UT's concept of critical mass isn't tied to demographics. And UT's Fisher One brief expressly agreed that a university cannot look to racial demographics and then work backward in its admissions process to meet a target tied to such demographics. To the extent that UT is pursuing parity with Texas demographics, that is nothing more than outright racial balancing 
which this court has time and again held patently unconstitutional. An interest linked to nothing other than proportional representation of various races would support indefinite use of racial classifications, employed first to obtain the appropriate mixture of racial views and then to ensure that the program continues to reflect that mixture. And as we held in Fisher 1, racial balancing is not transformed from patently unconstitutional to a compelling state interest simply by relabeling it racial diversity. The record here demonstrates the pitfalls inherent in racial balancing. Although UT claims an interest in the educational benefits of diversity, it appears to have paid little attention to anything other than the number of minority students on its campus and in its classrooms. UT's 2004 proposal illustrates this approach by repeatedly citing numerical assessments of the racial makeup of the student body and various classes as the justification for adopting a race-conscious plan. Instead of focusing on the benefits of diversity, UT seems to have resorted to a simple racial census. The majority, for its part, claims that although demographics alone are by no means dispositive, they have some value as a gauge of the university's ability to enroll students who can offer underrepresented perspectives. But even if UT merely views the demographic disparity as cause for concern, and is seeking only to reduce rather than eliminate the disparity, that undefined goal cannot be properly subjected to strict scrutiny. In that case, there is simply no way for a court to know what specific demographic interest UT is pursuing, why a race-neutral alternative could not achieve that interest, and when that demographic goal would be satisfied. If a demographic discrepancy can serve as a gauge that justifies the use of racial discrimination, then racial discrimination can be justified on that basis until demographic parity is reached. There is no logical stopping point short of patently unconstitutional racial balancing. Demographic disparities thus cannot be used to satisfy strict scrutiny here. 2. The other major explanation UT offered in the proposal was its desire to promote classroom diversity. The proposal stressed that UT has not reached a critical mass at the classroom level. In support of this proposition, UT relied on a study of select classes containing five or more students. As noted above, the study indicated that 52% of these classes had no African Americans, 16% had no Asian Americans, and 12% had no Hispanics. The study further suggested that only 21% of these classes had two or more African Americans, 67% had two or more Asian Americans, and 70% had two or more Hispanics. Based on this study, UT concluded that it had a compelling educational interest in employing racial preferences 
to ensure that it did not have large numbers of classes in which there are no students or only a single student of a given underrepresented race or ethnicity. UT now equivocates, disclaiming any discrete interest in classroom diversity. Instead, UT has taken the position that the lack of classroom diversity was merely a red flag that UT had not yet fully realized the constitutionally permissible educational benefits of diversity. But UT has failed to identify the level of classroom diversity it deems sufficient, again making it impossible to apply strict scrutiny. A reviewing court cannot determine whether UT's race-conscious program was necessary to remove the so-called red flag without understanding the precise nature of that goal or knowing when the red flag will be considered to have disappeared. Putting aside UT's effective abandonment of its interest in classroom diversity, the evidence cited in support of that interest is woefully insufficient to show that UT's race-conscious plan was necessary to achieve the educational benefits of a diverse student body. As far as the record shows, UT failed to even scratch the surface of the available data before reflexively resorting to racial preferences. For instance, because UT knows which students were admitted through the top 10% plan and which were not, as well as which students enrolled in which classes, it would seem relatively easy to determine whether top 10% students were more or less likely than holistic admittees to enroll in the types of classes where diversity was lacking. But UT never bothered to figure this out. Nor is there any indication that UT instructed admissions officers to search for African American and Hispanic applicants who would fill particular gaps at the classroom level. Given UT's failure to present such evidence, it has not demonstrated that its race-conscious policy would promote classroom diversity any better than race-neutral options, such as expanding the top 10% plan or using race-neutral holistic admissions. Moreover, if UT is truly seeking to expose its students to a diversity of ideas and perspectives, its policy is poorly tailored to serve that end. UT's own study which the majority touts as the best nuanced quantitative data supporting UT's position, demonstrated that classroom diversity was more lacking for students classified as Asian American than for those classified as Hispanic. But the UT plan discriminates against Asian American students. UT is apparently unconcerned that Asian Americans may be made to feel isolated or may be seen as spokespersons of their race or ethnicity. And unless the university is engaged in unconstitutional racial balancing based on Texas demographics, where Hispanics outnumber Asian Americans, it seemingly views the classroom contributions of Asian American students as less valuable than those of Hispanic students. In UT's view, apparently, Asian Americans are not worth as much as Hispanics in promoting cross-racial understanding, 
breaking down racial stereotypes and enabling students to better understand persons of different races. The majority opinion effectively endorses this view, crediting UT's reliance on the classroom study as proof that the university assessed its need for racial discrimination, including racial discrimination that undeniably harms Asian Americans, with care. While both the majority and the Fifth Circuit rely on UT's classroom study, they completely ignore its finding that Hispanics are better represented than Asian Americans in UT classrooms. In fact, they act almost as if Asian American students do not exist. Only the district court acknowledged the impact of UT's policy on Asian American students, but it brushed aside this impact, concluding, astoundingly, that UT can pick and choose which racial and ethnic groups it would like to favor. According to the district court, nothing in Gruder requires a university to give equal preference to every minority group and UT is allowed to exercise its discretion in determining which minority groups should benefit from the consideration of race. This reasoning, which the majority implicitly accepts by blessing UT's reliance on the classroom study, places the court on the tortuous path of deciding which races to favor. And the court's willingness to allow this discrimination against individuals of Asian descent in UT admissions is particularly troubling in light of the long history of discrimination against Asian Americans, especially in education. In sum, while the court repeatedly refers to the preferences as favoring minorities, it must be emphasized that the discriminatory policies upheld today operate to exclude Asian American students who have not made UT's list of favored groups. Perhaps the majority finds discrimination against Asian American students benign, since Asian Americans are overrepresented, but history should teach greater humility. Benign carries with it no independent meaning, but reflects only acceptance of the current generation's conclusion that a politically acceptable burden imposed on particular citizens on the basis of race is reasonable. Whereas here, the government has provided little explanation for why it needs to discriminate based on race. There is simply no way of determining what classifications are benign, and what classifications are in fact motivated by illegitimate notions of racial inferiority or simple racial politics. By accepting the classroom study as proof that UT satisfied strict scrutiny, the majority moves us from separate but equal to unequal but benign. In addition to demonstrating that UT discriminates against Asian American students, The classroom study also exhibits UT's use of a few crude, overly simplistic racial and ethnic categories. Under the UT plan, both the favored and the disfavored groups are broad and consist of students from enormously diverse backgrounds. Because crude measures of this sort threaten to reduce students to racial chits, UT's reliance on such measures further undermines any claim based on classroom diversity statistics. For example, 
students labeled Asian American seemingly include individuals of Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Hmong, Indian, and other backgrounds comprising roughly 60% of the world's population. It would be ludicrous to suggest that all of these students have similar backgrounds and similar ideas and experiences to share. So why has UT lumped them together and concluded that it is appropriate to discriminate against Asian American students because they are overrepresented in the UT student body? UT has no good answer, and UT makes no effort to ensure that it has a critical mass of, say, Filipino Americans or Cambodian Americans. As long as there are a sufficient number of Asian Americans, UT is apparently satisfied. UT's failure to provide any definition of the various racial and ethnic groups is also revealing. UT does not specify what it means to be African American, Hispanic, Asian American, Native American, or white. And UT evidently labels each student as falling into only a single racial or ethnic group. Without explaining how individuals with ancestors from different groups are to be characterized. As racial and ethnic prejudice recedes, more and more students will have parents or grandparents who fall into more than one of UT's five groups. According to census figures, individuals describing themselves as members of multiple races grew by 32% from 2000 to 2010. A recent survey reported that 26% of Hispanics and 28% of Asian Americans marry a spouse of a different race or ethnicity. UT's crude classification system is ill-suited for the more integrated country that we are rapidly becoming. UT assumes that if an applicant describes himself or herself as a member of a particular race or ethnicity, that applicant will have a perspective that differs from that of applicants who describe themselves as members of different groups. But is this necessarily so? If an applicant has one grandparent, great-grandparent, or great-great-grandparent who was a member of a favored group, is that enough to permit UT to infer that this student's classroom contribution will reflect a distinctive perspective or set of experiences associated with that group? UT does not say. It instead relies on applicants to classify themselves. This is an invitation for applicants to game the system. Finally, it seems clear that the lack of classroom diversity is attributable in good part to factors other than the representation of the favored groups in the UT student population. UT offers an enormous number of classes in a wide range of subjects, and it gives undergraduates a very large measure of freedom to choose their classes. UT also offers courses in subjects that are likely to have special appeal to members of the minority groups given preferential treatment under its challenged plan. 
and this, of course, diminishes the number of other courses in which these students can enroll. Having designed an undergraduate program that virtually ensures a lack of classroom diversity, UT is poorly positioned to argue that this very result provides a justification for racial and ethnic discrimination, which the Constitution rarely allows. 3. UT's purported interest in intra-racial diversity, or diversity within diversity, also falls short. At bottom, this argument relies on the unsupported assumption that there is something deficient or at least radically different about the African-American and Hispanic students admitted through the top 10% plan. Throughout this litigation, UT has repeatedly shifted its position on the need for intra-racial diversity. Initially, in the 2004 proposal, UT did not rely on this alleged need at all. Rather, the proposal examined two metrics, classroom diversity and demographic disparities, that it concluded were relevant to its ability to provide the benefits of diversity. Those metrics looked only to the numbers of African Americans and Hispanics, not to diversity within each group. On appeal to the Fifth Circuit and in Fisher One, however, UT began to emphasize its intraracial diversity argument. UT complained that the top 10% law hinders its efforts to assemble a broad, diverse class because the minorities admitted under that law are drawn largely from certain areas of Texas where there are majority-minority schools. These students, UT argued, tend to come from poor, disadvantaged families, and the university would prefer a system that gives it substantial leeway to seek broad diversity within groups of underrepresented minorities. In particular, UT asserted a need for more African-American and Hispanic students from privileged backgrounds. Thus, the top 10% law is faulted for admitting the wrong kind of African-American and Hispanic students. The Fifth Circuit embraced this argument on remand, endorsing UT's claimed need to enroll minorities from high-performing, majority-white high schools. According to the Fifth Circuit, these more privileged minorities bring a perspective not captured by students admitted under the top 10% law, who often come from highly segregated, underfunded, and underperforming schools. For instance, the court determined, privileged minorities can enrich the diversity of the student body in distinct ways because such students have higher levels of preparation and better prospects for admission to UT Austin's more demanding colleges than underprivileged minorities. Remarkably, UT now contends that Petitioner has fabricated the argument that it is seeking affluent minorities. That claim is impossible to square with UT's prior statements to this court in the briefing and oral argument in Fisher 1. Moreover, Although UT reframes its argument, it continues to assert that it needs affirmative action 
to admit privileged minorities. For instance, UT's brief highlights its interest in admitting the black student with high grades from Andover. Similarly, at oral argument, UT claimed that its interests in the educational benefits of diversity would not be met if all of the minority students were coming from depressed socioeconomic backgrounds. Ultimately, UT's intraracial diversity rationale relies on the baseless assumption that there is something wrong with African-American and Hispanic students admitted through the top 10% plan because they are from the lower-performing racially identifiable schools. In effect, UT asks the court to assume, without any evidence, that minorities admitted under the top 10% law are somehow more homogeneous, less dynamic, and more undesirably stereotypical than those admitted under holistic review. And UT's assumptions appear to be based on the pernicious stereotype that the African Americans and Hispanics admitted through the top 10% plan only got in because they did not have to compete against very many whites and Asian Americans. These are the very stereotypical assumptions that the Equal Protection Clause forbids. UT cannot satisfy its burden by attempting to substitute racial stereotype for evidence and racial prejudice for reason. In addition to relying on stereotypes, UT's argument that it needs racial preferences to admit privileged minorities turns the concept of affirmative action on its head. When affirmative action programs were first adopted, it was for the purpose of helping the disadvantaged. Now we are told that a program that tends to admit poor and disadvantaged minority students is inadequate because it does not work to the advantage of those who are more fortunate. This is affirmative action gone wild. It is also far from clear that UT's assumptions about the socioeconomic status of minorities admitted through the top 10% plan are even remotely accurate. Take, for example, parental education. In 2008, when petitioner applied to UT, approximately 79% of Texans aged 25 years or older had a high school diploma, 17% had a bachelor's degree, and 8% had a graduate or professional degree. In contrast, 96% of African Americans admitted through the top 10% plan had a parent with a high school diploma, 59% had a parent with a bachelor's degree, and 26% had a parent with a graduate or professional degree. Similarly, 83% of Hispanics admitted through the top 10% plan had a parent with a high school diploma, 42% had a parent with a bachelor's degree, and 21% had a parent with a graduate or professional degree. As these statistics make plain, the minorities that UT characterizes as coming from depressed socioeconomic backgrounds generally come from households with education levels exceeding the norm in Texas. Or consider income levels. In 2008, the median annual household income in Texas was $49,453. 
the household income levels for top 10% African American and Hispanic admittees were on par. Roughly half of such admittees came from households below the Texas median, and half came from households above the median. And a large portion of these admittees are from households with income levels far exceeding the Texas median. Specifically, 25% of African Americans and 27% of Hispanics admitted through the top 10% plan in 2008 were raised in households with incomes exceeding $80,000. In light of this evidence, UT's actual argument is not that it needs affirmative action to ensure that its minority admittees are representative of the state of Texas. Rather, UT is asserting that it needs affirmative action to ensure that its minority students disproportionately come from families that are wealthier and better educated than the average Texas family. In addition to using socioeconomic status to falsely denigrate the minority students admitted through the top 10% plan, UT also argues that such students are academically inferior. On average, UT claims, African American and Hispanic holistic admits have higher SAT scores than their top 10% counterparts. As a result, UT argues that it needs race-conscious admissions to enroll academically superior minority students with higher SAT scores. Regrettably, the majority seems to embrace this argument as well. This argument fails for a number of reasons. First, it is simply not true that top 10% minority admittees are academically inferior to holistic admittees. In fact, as UT's president explained in 2000, top 10% high school students make much higher grades in college than non-top 10% students. And strong academic performance in high school is an even better predictor of success in college than standardized test scores. Indeed, the statistics in the record reveal that for each year between 2003 and 2007, African-American in-state freshmen who were admitted under the top 10% law earned a higher mean grade point average than those admitted outside of the top 10% law. The same is true for Hispanic students. These conclusions correspond to the results of nationwide studies showing that high school grades are a better predictor of success in college than SAT scores. It is also more than a little ironic that UT uses the SAT, which has often been accused of reflecting racial and cultural bias as a reason for dissatisfaction with poor and disadvantaged African-American and Hispanic students who excel both in high school and in college. Even if the SAT does not reflect such bias, and I'm ill-equipped to express a view on that subject, SAT scores clearly correlate with wealth. UT certainly has a compelling interest in admitting students who will achieve academic success, but it does not follow that it has a compelling interest in maximizing admittees' SAT scores. 
approximately 850 four-year degree institutions do not require the SAT or ACT as part of the admissions process. This includes many excellent schools. To the extent that intraracial diversity refers to something other than admitting privileged minorities and minorities with higher SAT scores, UT has failed to define that interest with any clarity. UT has not provided any concrete targets for admitting more minority students possessing the unique qualitative diversity characteristics it desires. Nor has UT specified which characteristics, viewpoints, and life experiences are supposedly lacking in the African Americans and Hispanics admitted through the top 10% plan. In fact, because UT administrators make no collective qualitative assessment of the minorities admitted automatically, they have no way of knowing which attributes are missing. Furthermore, UT has not identified when, if ever, its goal, which remains undefined, for qualitative diversity will be reached. UT's intraracial diversity rationale is thus too imprecise to permit strict scrutiny analysis. Finally, UT's shifting positions on intraracial diversity and the fact that intraracial diversity was not emphasized in the proposal suggests that it was not the actual purpose underlying the discriminatory classification. Instead, it appears to be a post hoc rationalization. 4. UT also alleges, and the majority embraces, an interest in avoiding feelings of loneliness and isolation among minority students. In support of this argument, they cite only demographic data and anecdotal statements by UT officials that some students feel isolated. This vague interest cannot possibly satisfy strict scrutiny. If UT is seeking demographic parity to avoid isolation, that is impermissible racial balancing, and linking racial loneliness and isolation to state demographics is illogical. Imagine, for example, that an African-American student attends a university that is 20% African-American. If racial isolation depends on a comparison to state demographics, then that student is more likely to feel isolated if the school is located in Mississippi, which is 37% African American, than if it is located in Montana, which is 0.4% African American. In reality, however, the student may feel, if anything, less isolated in Mississippi, where African Americans are more prevalent in the population at large. If, on the other hand, state demographics are not driving UT's interest in avoiding racial isolation, then its treatment of Asian American students is hard to understand. As the district court noted, the gross number of Hispanic students attending UT exceeds the gross number of Asian American students. In 2008, for example, UT enrolled 1,338 Hispanic freshmen, and 1,249 Asian-American freshmen. 
UT never explains why the Hispanic students, but not the Asian American students, are isolated and lonely enough to receive an admissions boost. Notwithstanding the fact that there are more Hispanics than Asian Americans in the student population, the anecdotal statements from UT officials certainly do not indicate that Hispanics are somehow lonelier than Asian Americans. Ultimately, UT has failed to articulate its interest in preventing racial isolation with any clarity. And it has provided no clear indication of how it will know when such isolation no longer exists. Like UT's purported interests in demographic parity, classroom diversity, and intraracial diversity, its interests in avoiding racial isolation cannot justify the use of racial preferences. D. Even assuming UT is correct that, under Gruder, it need only cite a generic interest in the educational benefits of diversity, its plan still fails strict scrutiny because it is not narrowly tailored. Narrow tailoring requires a careful judicial inquiry into whether a university could achieve sufficient diversity without using racial classifications. If a non-racial approach could promote the substantial interest about as well and at tolerable administrative expense, then the university may not consider race. Here, there is no evidence that race-blind holistic review would not achieve UT's goals at least about as well as UT's race-based policy. In addition, UT could have adopted other approaches to further its goals, such as intensifying its outreach efforts, uncapping the top 10% law, or placing greater weight on socioeconomic factors. The majority argues that none of these alternatives is a workable means for the university to attain the benefits of diversity it sought. Tellingly, however, the majority devotes only a single, conclusory sentence to the most obvious race-neutral alternative, race-blind, holistic review that considers the applicant's unique characteristics and personal circumstances. Under a system that combines the top 10% plan with race-blind, holistic review, UT could still admit the star athlete or musician whose grades suffered because of daily practices and training, the talented young biologist who struggled to maintain above-average grades in humanities classes, and the student whose freshman year grades were poor because of a family crisis, but who got herself back on track in her last three years of school. All of these unique circumstances can be considered without injecting race into the process. Because UT has failed to provide any evidence whatsoever that race-conscious holistic review will achieve its diversity objectives more effectively than race-blind holistic review, it cannot satisfy the heavy burden imposed by the strict scrutiny standard. The fact that UT's racial preferences are unnecessary to achieve its stated goals is further demonstrated by their minimal effect on UT's diversity. In 2004, when race was not a factor, 
3.6% of non-top 10% Texas enrollees were African American, and 11.6% were Hispanic. It would stand to reason that at least the same percentages of African American and Hispanic students would have been admitted through holistic review in 2008, even if race were not a factor. If that assumption is correct, then race was determinative for only 15 African American students and 18 Hispanic students in 2008. The majority contends that the fact that race consciousness played a role in only a small portion of admissions decisions should be a hallmark of narrow tailoring, not evidence of unconstitutionality. This argument directly contradicts this court's precedent. Because racial classifications are a highly suspect tool, they should be employed only as a last resort. Whereas here, racial preferences have only a slight impact on minority enrollment, a race-neutral alternative likely could have reached the same results. As Justice Kennedy once aptly put it, the small number of students affected suggests that the school could have achieved its stated ends through different means. And in this case, a race-neutral alternative could accomplish UT's objectives without gratuitously branding the covers of tens of thousands of applications with a bare racial stamp and telling each student he or she is to be defined by race. Part 3 The majority purports to agree with much of the above analysis. The court acknowledges that because racial characteristics so seldom provide a relevant basis for disparate treatment, race may not be considered by a university unless the admissions process can withstand strict scrutiny. The court admits that the burden of proof is on UT, and that a university bears a heavy burden in showing that it had not obtained the educational benefits of diversity before it turned to a race-conscious plan. And the court recognized that the record here is almost devoid of information about the students who secured admission to the university through the plan, and that the court thus cannot know how students admitted solely based on their class rank differ in their contribution to diversity from students admitted through holistic review. This should be the end of the case. Without identifying what was missing from the African-American and Hispanic students, it was already admitting through its race-neutral process, and without showing how the use of race-based admissions could rectify the deficiency, UT cannot demonstrate that its procedure is narrowly tailored. Yet somehow, the majority concludes that petitioner must lose as a result of UT's failure to provide evidence justifying its decision to employ racial discrimination. Tellingly, the court frames its analysis as if petitioner bears the burden of proof here. 
but it is not the petitioner's burden to show that the consideration of race is unconstitutional. To the extent the record is inadequate, the responsibility lies with UT. For when a court subjects governmental action to strict scrutiny, it cannot construe ambiguities in favor of the state. Particularly where, as here, the summary judgment posture obligates the court to view the facts in the light most favorable to petitioner. Given that the university bears the burden of proof, it is not surprising that UT never made the argument that it should win based on the lack of evidence. UT instead asserts that if the court believes there are any deficiencies in the record that cast doubt on the constitutionality of UT's policy, the answer is to order a trial, not to grant summary judgment. Nevertheless, the majority cites three reasons for breaking from the normal strict scrutiny standard. None of these is convincing. Section A. First, the court states that, while the evidentiary gap perhaps could be filled by a remand to the district court for further fact-finding in an ordinary case, that will not work here because when petitioner's application was rejected, the university's combined percentage plan slash holistic review approach to admission had been in effect for just three years, so further fact-finding might yield little insight. This reasoning is dangerously incorrect. The Equal Protection Clause does not provide a three-year grace period for racial discrimination. Under strict scrutiny, UT was required to identify evidence that race-based admissions were necessary to achieve a compelling interest before it put them in place not three or more years after. UT's failure to obtain actual evidence that racial preferences were necessary before resolving to use them only confirms that its decision to inject race into admissions was a reflexive response to Gruder and that UT did not seriously consider whether race-neutral means would serve its goals as well as a race-based process. Section B. Second, in an effort to excuse UT's lack of evidence, the court argues that because the university lacks any authority to alter the role of the top 10% plan, it similarly had no reason to keep extensive data on the plan or the students admitted under it particularly in the years before Fisher 1 clarified the stringency of the strict scrutiny burden for a school that employs race-conscious review. But UT has long been aware that it bears the burden of justifying its racial discrimination under strict scrutiny. In light of this burden, UT had every reason to keep data on the students admitted through the top 10% plan. Without such data, how could UT have possibly identified any characteristics that were lacking in top 10% admittees 
and that could be obtained via race-conscious admissions. How could UT determine that employing a race-based process would serve its goals better than, for instance, expanding the top 10% plan? UT could not possibly make such determinations without studying the students admitted under the top 10% plan. Its failure to do so demonstrates that UT unthinkingly employed a race-based process without examining whether the use of race was actually necessary. This is not, as the court claims, a good-faith effort to comply with the law. The majority's willingness to cite UT's good faith as the basis for excusing its failure to adduce evidence is particularly inappropriate in light of UT's well-documented absence of good faith. Since UT described its admissions policy to this court in Fisher 1, it has been revealed that this description was incomplete. As explained in an independent investigation into UT admissions, UT maintained a clandestine admission system that evaded public scrutiny until a former admissions officer blew the whistle in 2014. Under this long-standing secret process, university officials regularly overrode normal holistic review to allow politically connected individuals, such as donors, alumni, legislators, members of the Board of Regents, and UT officials and faculty, to get family members and other friends admitted to UT, despite having grades and standardized test scores substantially below the median for admitted students. UT officials involved in this covert process intentionally kept few records and destroyed those that did exist. At one meeting, the administrative assistants tried not to keep any notes, but this proved difficult, so they took notes and later shredded them. And in the course of this litigation, UT has been less than forthright concerning its treatment of well-connected applicants. Despite UT's apparent readiness to mislead the public and the court, the majority is willing to be satisfied by UT's profession of its own good faith. Notwithstanding the majority's claims to the contrary, UT should have access to plenty of information about how students admitted solely based on their class rank differ in their contribution to diversity from students admitted through holistic review. UT undoubtedly knows which students were admitted through the top 10% plan and which were admitted through holistic review. And it undoubtedly has a record of all of the classes in which these students enrolled. UT could use this information to demonstrate whether the top 10% minority admittees were more or less likely than the holistic minority admittees to choose to enroll in the courses lacking diversity. In addition, UT assigns PAI scores to all students, including those admitted through the top 10% plan, for purposes of admission to individual majors. Accordingly, all students must submit a full application containing essays, letters of recommendation, a resume, 
a list of courses taken in high school, and a description of any extracurricular activities, leadership experience, or special circumstances. Unless UT has destroyed these files, it could use them to compare the unique personal characteristics of top 10 minority admittees with those of holistic minority admittees, and to determine whether the top 10 admittees are, in fact, less desirable than the holistic admittees. This may require UT to expend some resources, but that is an appropriate burden in the light of the strict scrutiny standard and the fact that all of the relevant information is in UT's possession. The cost of fact-finding is a strange basis for awarding a victory to UT, which has a huge budget, and a loss to petitioner, who does not. Finally, while I agree with the majority and the Fifth Circuit that Fisher 1 significantly changed the governing law by clarifying the stringency of the strict scrutiny standard, that does not excuse UT from meeting that heavy burden. In Adirond, for instance, another case in which the court clarified the rigor of the strict scrutiny standard, the court acknowledged that its decision altered the playing field in some important respects. As a result, it remanded the case to the lower courts for further consideration in light of the principles it had announced. In other words, the court made clear that, notwithstanding the shift in the law, the government had to meet the clarified burden it was announcing. The court did not embrace the notion that its decision to alter the stringency of the strict scrutiny standard somehow allowed the government to automatically prevail. Section C. Third, the majority notes that this litigation has persisted for many years, that Petitioner has already graduated from another college, that UT's policy may have changed over time, and that this case may offer little prospective guidance. At most, these considerations counsel in favor of dismissing this case as improvidently granted. None of these considerations has any bearing whatsoever on the merits of this suit. The majority cannot side with UT simply because it is tired of this case. Part 4 It is important to understand what is and what is not at stake in this case. What is not at stake is whether UT or any other university may adopt an admissions plan that results in a student body with a broad representation of students from all racial and ethnic groups. UT previously had a race-neutral plan that it claimed had effectively compensated for the loss of affirmative action and UT could have taken other steps that would have increased the diversity of its admitted students without taking race or ethnic background into account. 
What is at stake is whether the university administrators may justify systematic racial discrimination simply by asserting that such discrimination is necessary to achieve the educational benefits of diversity, without explaining, much less proving, why the discrimination is needed or how the discriminatory plan is well-crafted to serve its objectives. Even though UT has never provided any coherent explanation for its asserted need to discriminate on the basis of race, and even though UT's position relies on a series of unsupported and noxious racial assumptions, the majority concludes that UT has met its heavy burden. This conclusion is remarkable and remarkably wrong. Because UT has failed to satisfy strict scrutiny, I respectfully dissent. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus.podbean.com and click on the contact tab. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us.